Hello and welcome to The World in 30 Minutes, the podcast on the events, policies and ideas that will shape the world from the European Council on Foreign Relations. My name is Anthony Dworkin. I'm a senior policy fellow at ECFR, standing in for our regular host, Mark Leonard. And this week, we're going to talk about transatlantic relations and whether the West is coming back. At the moment, President Biden is in Europe for a series of summits, the G7 meeting in the UK, then a NATO meeting, a summit with the EU, and at the end, a bilateral with President Putin. After the turmoil of the Trump years, there are high expectations. And Biden has said that he wants to demonstrate that this trip shows democracies can meet the challenges and threats of the new age. But what can democracies achieve? And how do Europeans feel about it? There's some evidence of that in the striking results of a public opinion poll across 12 European countries, which ECFR published this week, along with two papers analyzing the results. So to discuss these questions and ECFR's polling, we have our own ECFR Summit, bringing together Susie Dennison, Director of ECFR's European Power Program, Jana Puglerin, Head of ECFR's Berlin office, and Jeremy Shapiro, currently on sabbatical in the US, but back as ECFR's Research Director later this year. Thanks to you all for joining. So Susie, why don't I start with you? How do Europeans feel about the, where both Europe and the United States are at this moment in their foreign policy? Do they see this as the, the moment to come back together for a new uh, push in a challenging and threatening world? So, um, thanks, Anthony. Um, um, I think it's uh, it's a mixed picture. So on the one hand, um, we can see um, that there has been some bounce back in um, Europeans' assessment of the US political system as a result of Biden having come in. Come in. So we asked um, our question about whether or not they thought the US political system worked well or was broken, both in November and uh, and then in our most recent poll, which was end April, early May. And in all countries except for Bulgaria, there has been some increase in the positive assessment of the US political system. That's kind of clear. But on the other hand, the kind of the predominant view overall is that the US political system isn't working well. One can kind of read into that, that they, um, they see that the US is indeed back, but they're, they're sort of sceptical about in what shape it's back. And then I think, you know, perhaps the, more, the even more um, striking finding is that when we asked about how Europeans would characterize um, other actors um, that they engage with, um, the US was no exception to the rule that um, the largest answer for all global players apart from Turkey was that they see um, these players as a as a necessary partner with whom we have to engage strategically. And, you know, the, the, the largest response wasn't in the case of the US um, or any of these others, other players, an ally with whom we share interests and values. So what that seems to suggest that they're now thinking of um, the US as kind of one piece in a global picture of a competitive world that they have to defend their interests in. But there doesn't seem to be a kind of an automaticity um, about the way that they, they sort of lean towards the US. So some doubts there on the European side. Jeremy, how does it look from the United States? Um, you had a piece in Politico recently, which has uh, provoked quite a lot of discussion, um, saying that despite the fact that Biden is talking a big game, in fact, on Europe, there's a degree of perhaps disinterest or seeing Europe as uh, not the main priority. 
Yeah, I mean, this this administration has been very focused on doing the polite thing with Europe on a, on showing up at all the right meetings, at saying all the right words, at intoning uh, at any at, at all the appropriate moments, the importance of transatlantic solidarity and values and all that other stuff. And, and you know, on a certain level, they definitely uh, mean it. Um, it's just that if you sort of look beneath that surface, you see an administration, which is certainly not in any way hostile to Europe or the EU, but is really more focused on other issues, particularly on China. I think it's almost impossible to overestimate just how much this the Biden administration, even more interestingly than the Trump administration, has centered its foreign policy around what it sees as a sort of uh, uh, coming global ideological struggle, economic military and ideological struggle with China. And Europe is has a part in that. It's but it's not the central front. Um, it's not though it doesn't have the same kind of part that it had in the Cold War uh with uh with the Soviet Union. And I think maybe even more importantly, uh and I guess consistent with the polling results that uh, that, that Susie and Yana got out of Europeans, they don't really have a lot of faith in Europe to really be able to play much of a part in that struggle, even if they wanted to. Uh, so I think from a from a Biden administration standpoint, Europe is neither the problem nor the solution when it comes to the sort of overriding imperative of dealing with the rise of China. And do you think, I mean, what is it that the Biden administration would want to see from Europe? Because if the struggle with China is in large part an economic one, Europe is a big economic power. Um, but is, the, is it that Europe doesn't really have what, it, what the US is looking for? Or that it's sort of just the Biden doesn't think that Europe is going to be able to get its act together. It's more of the latter, um, but it's not simply about getting the act, getting their act together. It's also about being, as the sort of polling results indicate, it's also about fully being in the U.S. corner. Uh, the you know China is a key trading partner of Europe, and I, I don't think that they're uh, given. The sort of lack of geopolitical capacity in Europe, given the the sort of overwhelming push towards self-interest, uh, which is everywhere around the world, but it's also happening in Europe. Uh, I don't think they ever see that they're going to get a concerted, full-throated, and coherent effort from Europe when it comes to China. And by and large, they've they've accepted that, and they can live with that. Um, and so they're going to try to push Europe on all of the geoeconomic and even geopolitical issues that you talked about, you know, Huawei and, and uh, industrial policy and, and all and all the trade issues uh, that are that sort of trade tech issues that they're forming, for example, this US-EU tech alliance. But they'll, they'll make efforts on all of that stuff. But it's um, it's not something that they expect to pay huge dividends. It's not something that they're expecting to put huge amount of effort into. And it is not the central front in the struggle against China, which is really uh, in Asia, both geopolitically and geoeconomically. So, Jan, it seems a degree of doubt um, on perhaps both sides of the transatlantic relationship. How does it look from Germany? Because, of course, as these kinds of economic questions become central, Germany is the decisive power in Europe. And of course, also has a big election this year that will mark the end of the, the Merkel era. 
So where is Germany in terms of understanding Europe's role in the world, the transatlantic relationship and Germany's place in that? Maybe I start with the transatlantic relationship because here our data for Germany basically mirrors what Susie has just said about the EU more broadly. So Germans understand that Europe needs a flexible set of partnerships when they look at the US. 19% of Germans see the US as an ally, as a country that we share our interests and values with, and 39% see it as a necessary partner, um, meaning a country we must strategically cooperate with. So um, that is a, a majority for a, a, yeah, transatlantic cooperation um, based on yeah, the alliance or the partnership. Um, but still 15% of Germans see um, the United States as a rival and seven even as an adversary. So I think there is a majority in Germany that, that thinks that we need to engage with the United States. But Germany is, of course, right uh, that there are many uh, problems. And, and especially when it comes to the question of China and in, in if, if the Germans are fully in the American camp, I think if you look at the, the policies that Chancellor Merkel had advocated, you see in, when it comes to China, we saw an engagement first approach, a mercantilistic approach, a let's trade with China um, and make this a priority approach. And also the Germans, I think, have been good at sitting at the fence, um, kind of trading with both sides. Uh, reassuring the Americans that, of course, we are kind of wholeheartedly uh, with them and, and part of the transatlantic alliance, but then uh, yeah, try to keep uh, our options with China open. And I think this is not really sustainable, as Jeremy has already uh, alluded to. When it comes to the EU, um, our findings are really striking when it comes to Germany, kind of when it comes to how Germans see the European Union. We see a breathtaking increase in Euroscepticism in Germany. Um, so we have, um, for example, asked uh, the question, what uh, kind of the, the consequence of the coronavirus crisis should be more um, cooperation on the EU level or uh, kind of the realization that EU integration has gone too far. And um, this year, 33% um, of Germans have said that EU integration went too far. That is um, 8%, no, this is 11% more than um, a year ago. 55% of Germans um, think that the EU political system is broken. Um, they basically, think that the EU political system is more broken than the American political system or their own political system. And 49% um, report a loss uh, of confidence. So I, I think that is actually um, a result that, that worries me, even though you could argue that we polled in April and in April uh, we yeah, that, that was reporting about uh, the vaccine disaster and the, the failure of um, the EU Commission to, to um, yeah, get enough vaccines for, for European citizens. But still, I think um, we need to have a close eye on this development. And what do you think that uh, Germans would be looking for from Europe in order to allay some of those doubts that you that came out so strongly in the polling well mark and i um, have written a policy brief about this um, and we make the argument that maybe it's not such a good idea to um, explain <laughs> to the german um, public all the time that kind of they need to make sacrifices for europe they need to uh, yeah they need to i don't know be the paymaster and accept this or that burden uh, in order for the european union because of the special responsibility they bear because of the sheer size of Germany or because of Germany's history. And we, we think it's really high time 
to, to change the narrative a bit and to make uh, clear how much basically Germany benefits from EU integration and and to to have a more interest based approach and to to look um, yeah more closely at what is Germany's interest and how does the EU help um, to to achieve our goals. Susie, I think one of the interesting things that came out of the survey too was despite the title of the policy brief said, uh, a loss of confidence, even perhaps a crisis of confidence um, among Europeans in the, the capacity of the EU, there still is a strong desire for Europe to be a united and powerful actor on the global stage. Do you want to tell us a bit about the kind of vision of European action that the polling seems to call for and what it would take to bring that about? Yeah, um, no, I agree with you that this was one of the surprises for us in this data set. One of the things we were really hoping to understand was whether or not the EU's handling or mishandling of, of the health crisis has changed Europeans' view of the suitability of their political system for the sorts of crises um, that we're facing today. As Jan has alluded to, although... Um, their views of, of whether or not the, the European and national systems work um, has hardened in the, in the negative sense. They don't think they do, especially in the larger member states. Um, they're not sort of dropping the idea of the European project. Instead, we get um, majorities in almost all member states um, and the largest answers in Germany and France saying that actually what we can see is the need for, for more European cooperation. So there seems to be this kind of distinction that's being made between the performance of the current institutions, which is disappointing, but the belief in the need for the EU in a, in a sort of continent-sized world. And one could, in a way, read that as a sort of certain coming of age of the EU as a, as a system, that, that people aren't sort of saying, well, it's the EU that's the problem. Um, rather, they're saying, no, we need more from, um, from the current leadership. Um, we need it to do better. Um, but, you know, this is a, you know, the EU is a fact of our lives now. Um, and yeah, in terms of sort of the way that um, they want the EU to do better, when we ask the question about um, how Europe should change after COVID, um, the biggest answer was 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 this notion that um, uh, we needed to respond collectively to global threats and challenges. And this kind of idea of the importance of, of the EU as a global player um, also came through when we put forward different visions um, uh, of, of the EU, asking respondents to say which one they identified with more. And the biggest one overall, a third of respondents, um, uh, chose the idea of the EU as a beacon of democracy and human rights on the global stage. But the second biggest one, um, what we called the Macron vision and the idea of European sovereignty, um, is also um, an image of the EU, an EU that can sort of defend itself um, in, in a competitive world. And so um, there does to seem to be um, a sense that, um, yeah, it's on, it's on the global challenges that, that we need to see more Europe. I mean, Jeremy, there is the sort of paradox here, isn't there? Because this message that, that seems to come out of the polling that... You know, what Europeans look are looking for is a Europe that stands up for democracy and human rights and has a more geopolitical vision of its place in the world. That seems to match rather closely the way that Biden is also framing America's foreign policy. You know, he's talked a lot about this kind of global confrontation between democracy and authoritarianism. Um, and you would think that that would make Europe and the United States natural allies. And he does, Biden does talk repeatedly about the, the need for democracies to stick together. Um, but do you think that in reality, he takes a, you know, a more hard-headed view? Not exactly. The 
I think actually Biden, uh, United States in general, sees sees the European Union roughly the way that Susie and Yana described the European people seeing it, which is, you know, it always reminds me of this uh, quote from Gandhi when he said when they asked him, you know, how do, uh, what do you think of Western civilization? And he thought he said, I think it would be nice. And uh, I think that what what you heard uh, the Euro- the European public uh, saying through that poll is that we're in favor of the European Union, but it doesn't kind of exist. Um, that it doesn't the the things that we want it to do aren't really there. We don't actually have faith in its ability to even in its ability to even happen. Uh, Susie said under this leadership, but I'm not really sure what leadership they're looking for. Um, I think the American perspective is roughly the same. They would love a European Union. That had all the attributes that um, uh, that apparently the European public want, but that, that doesn't exist. And uh, and I think your Americans, even more than Europeans, have given up largely on the idea uh, that it ever will. And I have to say that uh, there is a very serious divide, apparently less between the European public and the American government than between the European publics and their own governments on this issue. And I think that might express some of the realities of actually running a European country. But um, the, the, the European governments that the United States is talking to on this trip aren't reflecting uh, the views that we've just described. They are reflecting uh, a, an almost slavish desire for U.S. leadership. Um, you know, I think the French are an important exception. There are a couple of others, but by and large, that's what the U.S. encounters. The U.S. encounters uh, a... Um, a group that is sort of uh, the, a group of countries that desperately wants U.S. engagement, desperately wants U.S. protection, desperately wants the U.S. not to withdraw from any of its current commitments, and is willing to sort of say or do almost anything um, for that. I know that there are, there are important exceptions to that, and Germany has even become a partial exception. But this is overall what the U.S. feels like it's facing. And it leads to this approach from the U.S. where they sort of say there are going to be all these complaints about about what we do, not enough consultation, not enough this. But at the end of the day, the Europeans are going to do what they're going to do. They're going to uh, say that they're going to be that they want our protection. They're going to contribute not enough to the problems to really make a difference. And it doesn't really matter what we do. And uh, uh, to, in, in terms of how that contribution is affected. And actually, the Trump years were, were a verification of that. Um, there was a lot of changes in the European public opinion. There was very little change in European government policy toward the United States uh, during the Trump years. And so that, I think, implies to American policymakers, even with an administration that is much more interested in being polite and adhering to the forums, that it doesn't really matter that much uh, what they do. They're going to get the same reaction from the European government. But then would the would Biden's administration like to see a, a Europe that was more independent, acting more for itself, even if the price of that meant that it was setting its own direction and perhaps taking a different view on China in some respects than the United States? Um, I, yeah, I, look, I think that they would, but it's a very difficult question to get your hands around because if you try to ask that question to administration officials, they sort of say, well, it's never going to happen. So what's the what's the use of sort of thing? And it doesn't even matter what we do. And and this is the what I described in the article as the sort of cycle of codependency, which is the Americans um, are sure that Europeans will never get their act together. So they... So they behave as if they won't, and that discourages Europeans from getting their act together. 
Um, and it's, it's quite difficult to break out of that cycle. Uh, and although both sides on a certain level complain about it, they don't really see, you don't really see them taking active, difficult measures to break out of that cycle. I think that the French are really the only ones that really sort of think about it in this way and think about breaking the cycle, but they're not really getting a lot of help from either the Americans or other Europeans. So, Jeremy, I think, sorry, sorry, Anthony, but I think that the Americans can uh, help tremendously in that process because, um, at least from a German perspective, during the Trump years, there was always the impression that we get kind of a, a, a double-headed message, uh, like grow up, but, but please, the way we want you uh, to, to, yeah, to, to yeah, behave, no, you know? I, 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 re I recognize that, and I even agree. It's just that um, it's just that the American response to that is, well, it doesn't matter though. If we did those things, you still wouldn't respond. Uh, and we feel like we have done those things in the past and you still haven't responded. So that's an excuse. So we're not going to bother. We're not going to spend the effort and the political capital on it. And I think that in some sense, both sides are right. Uh, they, the uh, Americans should stop getting in the way and the, and the Europeans should get their act together. But I think this cycle is very hard to break. But for example, um, when it comes to my field of expertise, security and defense, the recent decision um, from the Biden administration to join one of the PESCO projects and to actively support kind of EU efforts uh, to, to become a more credible actor uh, in EU defense, even though all these efforts are still very dwarfish. Uh, but I think that this decision, this positive spirit that they brought into that relationship was really, really helpful because um, it's not letting the Europeans off the hook. It's Kind of communicating clearly is we want you to step up but if you need to kind of label it a european effort if you need to put an eu flag on on your capabilities we are perfectly fine with this and i think that was actually a really helpful contribution yeah look uh, I, i mean i agree it's just that um that has been the policy of uh, every american administration since 2005 um and uh the the major exception to that is um, the uh, is this defense industrial base problem, which still exists, uh, which is that the Americans need to sell uh, weapons to Europe in order to be able to afford the weapons that they want to build in the future. Uh, uh, and so that that is a real issue that is it gets wrapped up in this. But in terms of the political support, it's always been there. It was even there in the Trump administration. Uh, and I think in part, Uh, Europeans who are against this have instrumentalized the idea of American opposition. Uh, and in part, the Americans haven't really been putting a lot of effort into it because after 15 years of having this policy, after all of the excitement that I went through in the State Department over what you know the Lisbon Treaty could mean, they no longer really believe in it. And so they're willing to say good things about PESCO, fine. I mean, you know, if it works, that'd be great. I think they would support it, but they don't really see it as going very far. So I don't think they're willing to devote a lot of political capital and effort to it. And I don't think they're really willing to confront the defense industrial base issues, which are the most serious impediments. Susie, from your perspective, looking across Europe, do you see uh, any kind of will or commitment to um, you know, to kind of step up and follow through on what the public seems to be calling for, a, a more dynamic, um, independent European approach that's going to um, stand up for European values in a more forceful way? I'm sorry, I'm still um, enjoying too much the image of Jeremy getting excited over the Lisbon Treaty in the State Department, so I can't um, immediately come up with this. It's hard to believe, but it happens. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> this no, is I a mean... strange kind of person that we have uh, working for our think tags. <laughs> but no, I um, I would say um, potentially actually on on the area of climate from what I hear um, sort of coming out of the conversations ahead of the summit where um, we know that we have quite common messaging between the EU and the US on what needs to happen globally um, but very different approaches about what they're planning to do domestically um, uh, in order to respond to that with a kind of European Green Deal that is based um you know, in part on um, building up um, the renewable sector and so on, but also disincentivizing the use of carbon. Whereas um, the US approach seems to be much more about investing in green tech and um, and renewables and uh, sort of big no on carbon pricing for now and so on. And so I think um, that, 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 that that's somewhere where um, if Europeans are kind of serious about um, responding to the, the public mood on this um, within Europe, then there need to be some sort of reasonably hard talks um, behind the scenes about what climate leadership actually means. So uh, perhaps that's one area. And then our data set indicates as well that um, on the area of um, vaccine sharing, um, there's um, quite strong public support um, for a European contribution to um, the uh, to the global campaign on vaccination. Um, and there seemed to be kind of more, more of a positive mood on the US side as well on that front now. So maybe that's another area where um, the EU can push the US to go further. And, and Jana, I'm going to just come to you for a, a short final answer. Do you see in this year of change in Germany any sense that uh, Germany could emerge as a kind of driving force behind the more active or more dynamic, um, more independent, perhaps European um, role in the world? Yeah, I, I, I mean, I'm, I'm the hopeful uh, person here uh, in this call, I think. I, I definitely see a chance for um, a renewed transatlantic relationship, um, especially with a new German government. Um, I mean, it's pretty sure that the Greens will be part of the um, next German government. That means that they, there will be um, a need for um, a changed approach towards China uh, and also a more hawkish approach maybe towards um, or a more principled approach to foreign policy, uh, more broadly, more hawkish approach towards Russia. And, and I think, um, uh, well, I mean, we have uh, talked about uh, the need for Germany to do more to, to shoulder a bigger burden and all this. And here maybe Germany is right that this is a forever a conversation, but um, but I think it, people here have started to realize that um, that something needs to change, and that we need need to end the paralysis that we've been into for the last years. And I think we need a, a breath of fresh air and a new government um, in order to see that um, happen. But I think I think Germany is capable of doing it, and I'm so hopeful. Thank you. A, a good night to end on. These are. Um as you say, big issues, uh, which have been around for a while, and we'll come back to them. We couldn't hope to solve them here today, but um, at least I hope we've provided uh, something of a counterpoint to the um, rhetoric that will come out of the various summit meetings. Um, the last thing that we're going to do, as always, on this podcast is our bookshelf segment, um, where we say what we've been reading. Uh, Jeremy, I imagine you might have had some time for reading on your sabbatical. So 
what uh, would you recommend? I had significantly more time for Netflix, but um, <laughs> I, I have been reading. Uh, um, I, I did read this book uh, a couple of months ago called The Orientalist, which was this sort of exploration of the author of, uh, of what is known, at least colloquially, as the Azerbaijani uh, national novel. So, uh, and the Orientalist is the story of the life of the, of the anonymous author of this novel. Uh, the, um, uh, the, the author of The Orientalist sort of tracked down who the author was and then told the story of his life, which was quite an incredible one. And so I, I read that a little while ago. So now I've gone back and started to read the novel itself, which is called uh, Ali and Nino. Um, and it's, it's pseudonymously by Kerbin Said. And it's the sort of, it's a sort of love story set against the um, backdrop of the Red Army invasion of Baku in uh, right after the end of the First World War. Uh, and I guess everybody in Azerbaijan has read this book. <laughs> That's certainly exotic, the Azerbaijani national novel, perhaps. Jana, how about you? I'm deep into um, German politics and German foreign policy right now, and I thought it was time to get an outsider's perspective. So I, I'm currently reading um, John Kampfner's Why the Germans Do It Better, Notes from a Grown-Up Country. Um, it's written by a Brit. A very positive assessment of, of the Germans. And I think this is maybe a healing exercise after <laughs> the policy brief I've just co-authored with Mark, where we basically say that the status quo is dysfunctional and the Germans are, are getting it all wrong. Um, yeah, so this is part of my healing exercise, John Kampfner. And Susie, how about you? Um, so I've mainly been reading polling data lately, um, but um, when I haven't, I'm applying for my French nationality. And so um, I've been reading up on French history and uh, constitution and, and so on. And um, so uh, what I was reading this week was uh, Histoire de la laïcité en France, um, about yeah, France's relationship with, uh, with the church um, by Jean Bourbon. And um, it's actually quite interesting, but I can't really think of a way to... Uh, Relate it to the conversation we're having. No, but I'm sure it's very central to becoming a French citizen because that <laughs> does seem to be fundamental to the French identity. Indeed. Um, so, of course, the main um, bits of reading that I want to recommend are the two policy briefs that we came out with this week. Um, one by, by Susie and Jana, Crisis of Confidence, How Europeans See Their Place in the World. And the other, Bayana and Mark Leonard, how to prevent Germany becoming Eurosceptic. And also, I'll mention Jeremy's piece. In Politico, Biden talks a big game on Europe, but his actions tell a different story. And we will put links to all those pieces up on our website. Um, thank you all very much for a really lively and interesting discussion. And uh, until next week, it's goodbye. The researcher of this podcast is Lucy Hauptenthal, and our editor is Chris Eichberger. <laughs>